You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 135. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. And I always tell people inflammation is your body's mad at you. And so if you think about it in that most simplistic way, then you can imagine that there's something that you're doing to your body or something is being done to your body to irritate it. Well, hello, veggie lovers. How are you doing today? It's so nice to be back here with you with this lovely guest, Dr. Monica Agarwal. If you haven't already heard her speak, if you haven't read her book, Body on Fire, How Inflammation Triggers Chronic Illness and the Tools We Have to Fight It, you have to. She's awesome. She is a wealth of knowledge. She has so many great tips and information. This episode, you're just going to love it. But before I tell you more about Dr. Agarwal, for new listeners, if you haven't already checked out all of my amazing free resources on my website, dryami.com forward slash free, go and check it out. There are so many great PDF downloads, how to replace dairy, how to replace meat, a plant-based shopping list, ideas for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, eating out guide. So, so, so much all for free. Download one, download them all. It's all available for you there. DrYami.com forward slash free. Also feel free to share with your friends and family. Cause I know that some of you, you may be just starting out on a plant-based diet or you're still transitioning. You're still trying to find those tricks to make it easier and more sustainable for you. And so I hope that these resources will help you. DrYami.com forward slash free. Thank you to all of you that have been so loyal to the podcast and keep coming back week after week. I appreciate you so much. I want to read a five-star review on Apple Podcasts by Reality Crazy. Reality Crazy says, plant-based perfection. Love the podcast, great guests, and wonderful information. Thank you so much for that review. Amazing. Thank you. And thank you also to all of you that have read my book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, recently just celebrated its one-year anniversary since its release. And I'm so happy. Thank you for the feedback and for also sharing it with your friends and family so that we can help more parents, grandparents, and family members learn how to feed children with more joy, less stress, intuitive eating. It's so, so helpful. It's called The Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. Please remember that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment by a healthcare professional. So if you have concerns about your own or your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, please consult their healthcare provider. Okay, so let's talk about Dr. Monica Agarwal. What a treat to interview her today. Dr. Agarwal went to the University of Virginia and received her BA in religious studies with a minor in biology. She attended the Medical College of Virginia, completed her residency at Tufts New England Medical Center, and transitioned to a cardiology fellowship at the University of Maryland. Further training includes an integrative medicine fellowship at the University of Arizona, and she is board certified in cardiology, nuclear cardiology, and echocardiology or echocardiography. 
So today, Dr. Agarwal is the Director of Integrative Cardiology and Prevention at the University of Florida, where she teaches and emphasizes plant-based nutrition and often performs multiple mind-body techniques with her patients, including yoga and meditation. At the hospital, she hosts half-day immersions to give people practical tips on how to implement her five-step solution to reduce chronic illness. In addition to giving educational lectures to physicians on nutrition and how to implement a healthy living plan with her patients, she speaks nationally on these subjects and on the benefits of a plant-based diet on decreasing the risk of disease. Dr. Agarwal was named a Next Generation Innovator by Cardiology Today and 2019 was named Florida's Cardiovascular Researcher of the Year by the Florida Chapter of the American College of Cardiology, which provided her with a grant to conduct important research needed on nutrition. She is the co-author with Joythi Rao of Body on Fire, How Inflammation Triggers Chronic Illness and the Tools We Have to Fight It, an updated revision of their first book, Finding Balance. More information can be found at drmonicaagarwal.com. So this is such a great episode because we talk about her story and Dr. Agarwal is just so honest and transparent. And I just love her approach in telling her story, but also telling it from a place of experience so that we can learn from what she went through so that we can have the richness of background of where she was, you know, like how she was feeling when she was going through her own chronic illness. We talk about what inflammation is. And I love how she really just summarizes that the way that she talks about inflammation to her patients. We talk about typical triggers, signs and symptoms, what the gut might have to do with inflammation. And then we start talking about the different lifestyle habits that we can adopt that can help us decrease or prevent chronic inflammation of course, talk about nutrition, foods that she recommends eliminating, foods that she recommends adding, spices, which ones she loves, why they're important. And we really get into the discussion on oils. And, you know, she's a true scientist. I really, really love how she answered the question on oils. Then we also talk about positive thinking and optimism and how it's so important to also pay attention to our mind and our emotions. And she just leaves us with a great call to action, which is very easy to implement. You can start doing today right away, and I hope you will. So thank you all for tuning in to this episode today. I hope that you love Dr. Agarwal as much as I do and that this brings some good information, some actionable tips to your life to help either decrease, reverse, or prevent inflammation. All right, let's get to it. Here is Dr. Monica Agarwal. Dr. Monica Agarwal, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio. I have your book here, Body on Fire, How Inflammation Triggers Chronic Illness and the Tools We Have to Fight It. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you so much for writing this book. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. Well, for my listeners that may not know about you, let's start with your backstory. How did you even get to the point that you were writing this book? And then what was it that inspired you to write the book? Sure. So um, I'm a cardiologist. Uh, I'm a preventive cardiologist at the University of Florida. Um, And I've been in practice now for 10 years. Um, And about this, I've always been interested in wellness and prevention. In fact, I had done the University of Arizona Integrative Fellowship. um, And so I've always had an interest and had run community screenings, but I hadn't fully understood... um, Maybe I just thought that if you eat right and be healthy, which is what we're taught in medical school and exercise, eat right and exercise, that everything was going to be okay. And I hadn't really fully understood what that really meant and the components of what that meant. But I just figured what if I just sort of remind people to do those things that I was going to make impact. So I spent years of my life being that kind of cardiologist, um, giving out a lot of medications. And then I myself um, had a... Um, 
episode of illness. So uh, I have um, a crazy history in the sense that I, after I finish, so when you go into cardiology, you are in training forever. And so by the time you actually finish, you realize that you want to have babies. And so there's this like, oh my God, I got to have babies um, because I'm going to also, all of a sudden gonna, I'm going to be old. And since I wanted to have a couple of kids, I had to sort of get going quickly. And so what I did was I started practicing and then decided to have three children in four years because I'm crazy. And not really that I'm crazy. I mean, the truth is I actually had three miscarriages before I uh, had my first kid. And so things never really happen the way you want them to. And so when people tell me that they want to have a child so that it will be, you know, I want to have a spring baby or this, that, or they, they have certainly so many people. And I mentor a lot of young women and I often tell them, I say, tell them that, you know, you will have amazing plans, but almost all of them will not go the way you want them to, because I think we're in, and in medicine, right, we're, we're so controlled and we always sort of have a plan, four years of medical undergrad, four years of medical school, four years of res, three years of residency, three years of fellowship. And so you start thinking about life as being this organized plan. And then when you realize, then you realize somewhere along the way that life doesn't actually do that. So I had several miscarriages. I didn't think I was going to be able to have children. Um, and then I got pregnant and it took, and then I just kept having kids. So I'll sort of say like, people always joke with me and they say, Oh, I remember you when you were pregnant. I'm like, honey, I was pregnant for six years. I was pregnant or nursing for six years. So I was either big in the, in the tummy or big in the breast. You never knew <laughs> when you saw me. So um, anyway, I'm getting this long winded. So what did I, so ultimately after I had my third kid, um, I started manifesting, uh, migratory joint pain, um, over a several week period. I went from being sort of an avid runner to being completely immobilized. Uh, I, I couldn't, um, even climb the steps. I was so disabled. Um, and, um, I, I had a four month old baby and then I was diagnosed with, uh, advanced rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and anybody who knows something about rheumatoid arthritis knows that in pregnancy can often trigger, uh, inflammatory conditions. Um, and so that was likely my trigger. And, um, it was at that point that I got on medications and started getting so many side effects from the medications that I started feeling despondent. And in those moments of despondence, perhaps when you become your best, um, because I started learning uh, with a chance encounter I had with a nutritionist, uh, she told me that I needed to start looking at my diet. And I thought, I, I know how to eat well. I'm a cardiologist, right? I mean, you have we have this mentality that we as physicians actually know what we're talking about without the training. And we really don't. And it took years for me to understand that. But um, after a lot of training and understanding, I started realizing that there's so many things that we do to our bodies to hurt it. Uh, and all those insults hurt us over time. And then started learning that there's ways to actually fix it. And that was really life altering for me. So it changed my whole practice. I moved from being a uh, outside, um, a private car practice cardiologist and went back into academics to uh, really focus on building a prevention clinic and then teaching the next generation of, of cardiologists and also to do research and really get the word out there that what we're doing works. Um, and uh, that sort of brought me into why I wrote the book, because the, the saddest part, and I talk about this in the chapter in the book, is that I was kind of mean after I got sick. Um, I was mean and angry and bitter. And I always tell people that I I, I blamed my kid you know, I, if I, and not really that I blamed her, but I thought if I hadn't tempted fate and I hadn't had a third kid and if, why did I, if I hadn't done this, if I hadn't done that, and then I wouldn't have gotten sick as if it was her fault that I'd gotten sick. And I think what, I think you learn, you know, when you're in dark places, you do and say dark things. And I tell you that story because it embarrasses me. But what I think that I realized and the reason I wrote that book is because at the end of the day, it was because of her that I actually learned how to heal people and heal myself. And if it wasn't for her, then I would never be where I am today. And so I have all of her, her to thank. So if anybody, that book is for my daughter, Asha. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's so powerful. And it just gives me chills because 
I love how honest and transparent you are because we've all been through those dark places. Obviously, you had a huge impact on your life, being a professional, being an active person, somebody that felt like, yeah, I know how to eat healthy. I know how to live. And then this impacted you so strongly and, and, you know, such a painful way too, not just emotionally, but physically painfully. So I thank you for being brave and taking it on in a way that you actually expanded your life. You know, you didn't contract and be like, all right, well, I'm just going to be bitter for the rest of my life. This happened to me. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, Going back a step, because I always just love to hear Whenever you were, before you learned, you know, you, you had the illness and you learned about a different way of eating in your brain, what was eat right? What did that mean? Like, I just want to see what that plate would look like. Yeah. So it's always so interesting. I also reflect on that sometimes. And so, um, at that time eating right to me meant eating low fat, eating, um, no fried foods, um, and eating less animal products. So I was already vegetarian, but arguably I was vegetarian because of animal rights more than I was for health. Um, and so, but I probably worked it out in my head that it shouldn't be animal products. Um, but I didn't understand the impact at all of gut flora or, um, probiotic or inflammation, none of those concepts were normal for me. So when I was pregnant, I could tell you that I ate, um, cheese, like it was going out of style. Um, and probably even between, I mean, I, I ate so much cheese. I remember I could eat those cheese sticks. Um, I'd have a glass of milk every day. I'd have two or three cheese sticks every day. Cause I needed to keep my protein levels up or mm-hmm. because I needed to keep my energy levels up. I mean, so many misconceptions of how food works. Um, and I ate a lot of simple sugars, um, and, um, but I ate a lot of veggies, I, but I just didn't eat nearly the amount. It's funny. You can be vegetarian and not eat so many vegetables, but at mm-hmm. that time, and I will sort of tell people just because you're vegetarian doesn't mean you eat a lot of vegetables. And they're always like, what do you mean? Like, well, let's look at what you actually eat. Um, and so it would have had probably some lentils on a plate, a bunch of cheese, um, probably some white rice, maybe some Indian style bread, yogurt, uh, those kind of foods would be regular on my plate, um, you know, eight, nine years ago. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Well, rheumatoid arthritis is an inflammatory condition, a chronic inflammatory condition. And I feel like we use the term inflammation so much, but many people might not understand what inflammation truly is. So can you give us the basic definition? What is inflammation and give us maybe some examples of what diseases have inflammation at their core. Sure. So inflammation is, I always describe it as your body's mad at you. And actually the reason the title of the book is called body on fire. It's, it's your body's mad and it's on fire. It's inflamed. It's irritated. It's mad at you. And I always tell people inflammation is your body's mad at you. And so if you think about it in that most simplistic way, then you can imagine that there's something that you're doing to your body or something is being done to your body to irritate it. Mm -hmm. So rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune inflammatory condition. So I have a genetic predisposition to rheumatoid arthritis. I'm not hundred percent sure why I don't have it in my family, but I have the gene for rheumatoid arthritis, but it took, it takes an event for, and for me, you know, I went through years of my life without actually expressing that gene or expressing any inflammation, but you trigger that inflammation. So I think there's so much to genes versus epigenetics or so genes versus the environment around the gene that triggers or has causes expression of the gene. So my gene got turned on at a time of inflammation, whether the pregnancy triggered that, um, And then maybe uh, the fact that I was a crazy woman, like I slept four hours a day, I had three kids under four, I was full-time cardiologist, I'm trying to make baby food at midnight, I remember, and then I was still trying to Um, I still remember uh, a crazy story of how I was, it was my daughter's birthday. She was probably two, 
but I insisted that I had to bake cupcakes. So it was, it was literally 1130 at night and I'm pasting the frosting on the cupcakes that so that she could have them for her daycare. She's two years old. Um, and, uh, but I wasn't even there to deliver them to her in the morning cause I had to go to work. So, you know, I just ran this crazy life. And so, you know, I, I always tell people that inflammation is a imbalance between your resources and your demands. So if you think about the demands on your body, well, there's all the stresses and stress. People think, oh, I'm stressed all the time, anxiety wise. Well, gosh, there's so much more than that, right? There's environmental stress, like too much sun or chemical pollutants or even noise. Or nowadays it's our stimulation, like our phones and our constant social media. I mean, those are all sources of stimulation and their demands on us, but also it's the food we eat and the lack of activity and the lack of sleep and all those things are demands. But then there's so many resources. And so if you think about the opposite of that is your resources, it's your sleep and healthy foods and clean living and happy to activity and joy and calming the mind. And those things are sort of the resources, but most of us are like our cell phones. When we are at 7%, we are depleted and we're all at 7% right now. But when we are unlike with our phones, which we go and charge in the outlet and we don't do that to our bodies. Mm -hmm. So there's so much sympathetic tone, fight or flight, high stress, whatever you want to call it, which is always on. We're always revved up and we're never give ourselves time to have our parasympathetic or our rest and recovery. We never, we never calm down. We never relax and allow our bodies to recover when the cheetah goes and runs for their food they run, 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 run at 90 miles per hour. And then the next thing they do is they rest, but we don't do that. And so I think that that imbalance is what triggers inflammation. And there's many, there's more to it, but if you can imagine that in a, a simplistic cartoon way that you have all these resources and a lot of these demands, and when that is imbalance, unbalanced, that's when you trigger inflammation. And then to also think that that inflammation then is in your body. And so, um, and a lot of the mechanism is through the gut biome, which we may discuss or not. Um, but the, so imagine, uh, a sim, a, a good example is a person who has celiac disease. So celiac disease is a very classic example of an inflammatory condition. So patients who eat gluten, uh, who have the gene where they can't process uh, gluten, uh, if they eat bread, for instance, it'll go into their gut. And what happens in their gut is that they uh, get something called a leaky gut. So what happens is, is that the actual intestinal junction points actually split apart and then inflammatory cells that shouldn't, uh, toxins, let's call it, get into the bloodstream that shouldn't get there. The intestinal lumen is there to protect your bloodstream from the toxins. But unfortunately, when a person who has celiac disease eats wheat, they have those junctions break and those tight junctions break, and then the toxins can get into the bloodstream. So if that happens for a short amount of time, that's not a big deal. But in patients who have celiac disease, for instance, you break those junctions for four or five hours at a time. So then your body is exposed to all of those toxins and your body creates inflammation in response because it brings out all of these army you know, guys who are going to attack that um, those toxins, but that triggers inflammation. And then if that inflammation, it doesn't just sit in the gut, right? In a celiac patient, it goes all over the body. A celiac patient will often have headaches and rash and can have seizures. So you can have this inflammation in the gut, but then it becomes widespread. So why not for every autoimmune condition, something is being triggered that triggers that inflammation, but doesn't just sit in that gut, it can then become widespread. So I think, you know, that there's so many areas there and mechanisms through the gut, but also through sympathetic tone that trigger this widespread inflammation and then trigger so many different things. And everybody doesn't get the same thing, right? I got rheumatoid arthritis because I had that genetic predisposition, but other people may be genetically predisposed to other things. And then the inflammation then can activate that gene. Yeah. And so what are some of the other examples of conditions? You mentioned celiac, maybe lupus, but what are some other conditions that people may not even link to being inflammatory? So inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's and IBD, type 1 diabetes um, is one that I often think about, uh, and heart disease, right? So, you know, patients who develop, so my area, uh, if you develop plaque in your heart, you do that because you have a poor diet, genes, et cetera, and you build these little plaques in your pipes. But inside those pipes, 
they sometimes those little plaques will rupture or explode and that causes an acute heart attack. Well, why does that happen? Well, it's all inflammation. Mm -hmm. So some people will have inflammation, will go to their coronary vessels, they'll create an unstable plaque and that plaque will rupture and they'll have a heart attack. And so I think that that's often misunderstood. Um, but even multiple sclerosis, I mean, these are all sort of inflammatory conditions that people don't appreciate. And all the spectrum of rheumatoid, lupus, uh, Sjogren's, scleroderma, um, these are all inflammatory and uh, conditions. And the symptoms can be very wide and varied. Obviously, pain, different types of joint pains, rashes, redness, swelling. Uh, but some of those conditions, you may not have symptoms until you get some pretty dramatic symptoms, right? Absolutely. I mean, I guess it also, you know, I think that's the sad thing is like when we're in our 20s, right, we have this perception in our 10s and that we are invincible. And so I certainly did. I mean, I, I couldn't understand. I was, I sort of wrote in my book that I was surprised when my son bled for the first time, because I didn't really understand that there was blood in there. Like I'm a cardiologist. I know there's blood, but I like that you're, that, you know, we're not invincible. And I think that that is always a funny thing to realize a funny, silly thing that we grow up maybe feeling in our twenties, we have that feeling, but it's then in, but, and so we have these habits, all these, all those years and we're like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Um, but then, you know, in your thirties, you start realizing actually, you know what, all the things you did your whole life, they impact you, they mm -hmm. can hurt you. And some of the things that I, I do like seeing young people and, and you, you have that unique um, group of people because you, you work in pediatrics. I love that because you get to see people when they're young mm -hmm. and you can impact change at such a crucial time, which I love. And so I also love seeing young people. I see, you know, everyone, but I do enjoy seeing young people too, because I think, you know what, you think you're invincible now, but I promise you it changes. So let's change your body now. So you don't have problems in the future. Yeah. And I love how you were comparing us to non-human animals like a cheetah or other animals that, you know, they may work hard, they may do stressful things, but then they pull it back and they tune into their bodies. And I feel like as humans, we're such an interesting mix because we are, we have that primitive brain inside of us, but yeah. then we have this higher brain that overrides the signals of our bodies. I mean, it's just yeah. incredible. We can do the most amazing things, but it's because we're overriding signals from our body saying, don't do that. You're probably going to die. Nah, it's okay. I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> you know, it's, so it's, it's just like fascinating, isn't it? it to is. be a human, what a combination. I mean, it, it makes us great, but it is also our biggest downfall because we, exactly. we, and I think it is the true art. I mean, you know, so many people now, especially during COVID are talking and reflecting on stress and, uh, calming the mind. And, you know, people are talking about affirmations and the need for sort of love. And, and I'm so glad to see that. I mean, that's, if anything has been a good thing that's come out of this is that people do seem to be slowing down a little bit and maybe listening a little bit more to our bodies because we, 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 just don't know how to do it. And, and we're taught from a young age to just do what needs to be done. And it's something I tell my kids, actually, I still do. And I, you know, I'm reflecting on that now. I say, you know, we, we just do what we needs to, we need to be done, but I, I've changed it. That's what I grew up saying, but now I change it. And I say, but, but we have to listen to our body. Yes. And so our, your body is telling you you're tired. No, 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 mommy, I'm not tired. I'm not tired. Let's stay up a little longer and read. No, no, you let's, let's think about this. And, you know, I, I hope to give them what I might do wasn't able to give to myself. You know, we meditate and we really talk about calming the mind and slowing down and breathing because I mean, we're just always on I mean, it's exhausting. Yes. yes. Oh, that's so wonderful that you do that. Okay. Well, you know, we've talked about what it is, what the conditions are, maybe some symptoms, what can we do about it? So we've talked about slowing down and addressing our lifestyle habits, but can you get a little bit more specific as to whenever you are talking to patients that may have already developed an inflammatory condition or want to prevent one, what can we do in our lives to help us decrease or prevent this chronic inflammation? 
So good. I, I, my favorite question um, is always to talk about sort of what we can do. So there's so many things. And sometimes when we talk about them as a list, it becomes a little overwhelming, doesn't it? Because you start saying, uh, well, you need to do this. And so I've learned with my patients, actually, and some advice that I would give to the listeners is not to take this advice as like, I got to go do all this stuff today. Because when I work with patients, for instance, I, I work with them on one facet and I send them out for six weeks and then we add another one and we build. And this is often a six month to a year process because I always remind people that you took 50 years to build up certain habits that I can't turn them around in two weeks. Um, and it takes time. And, and I've learned that that really does help and it's important not to feel overwhelmed. So uh, things that I think you can do to decrease inflammation. One of the easiest things to do to decrease inflammation is to learn to sleep. And so um, I uh, have a rule in my house, for instance, that there's no electronics for, we don't do electronics with my kids at all during the week. Um, but on the weekends, they're allowed to do electronics, but not for the first, the hour um, before bed. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that that time really needs to be focused on calming the mind. And with my patients, uh, I also implement the same rules because there's even data that the blue light from a lot of these electronics, they prevent us from feeling tired. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I think is worthwhile is that an average adult should sleep seven to nine hours and the average nine or 10 year old should sleep nine to 11 hours a night. And I see these kids that are sleeping, you know, seven, eight hours. I'm, it's not enough. It's just not enough. And you can speak to that more than I can. And so I really focus on sleep. And so everybody knows in my house, if somebody has a violin teacher wants to come late, no, sorry, my kid sleeps. And so that's a a thing that maybe I said an easy thing. And for a lot of people, it's not to step, to close things, to switch things off. So what I often tell patients is if the the time is to sleep at 11, because you're going to wake up at seven, so that gives you eight hours, uh, then you need to set an alarm for 10 Mm o'clock. And at 10 o'clock, your alarm should go off so that you do not do any electronics. Uh, And that's the time you can read, you can listen to music uh, if you would like, but preferably you just read, you sit, you breathe, you talk to your spouse um, and um, those kind of things. And um, so that's one thing. So the second thing I really emphasize is nutrition. I mean, that's my wheelhouse, your wheelhouse. The thing that I love the most is working on people's nutrition. And so often what I'll do with patients is try to recommend sort of elimination of certain things and then adding back a few things. And so you can, some people are, you know, it's like cigarettes. Some people like to do everything at once. And then some people like to sort of gradually build and each person I kind of say, well, look who are, you know, what kind of person are you? How do you do? Um, but I'd like to do things like start out with just saying like, let's just cut out red meat. Uh, and so I, if, even if you cut out, there's no need for red meat in anybody's diet. So there's no need for red meat period. Okay. So there it's high in saturated fat. It's high in nitrates. It's inflammatory. It's carcinogenic. Uh, we don't need it. And people say, well, I need the protein. No, you do not. Uh, there is no need for red meat period. So I know that's hard for some people who may be listening to this, but that's absolutely true. So often I'll start with cutting out that and then I'll say, and then we're going to cut out all of the fake food. And so let's cut out the sodas, um, the foods that you don't, that come in the box that you have 15 ingredients that you've never heard of. I I try to teach people how to read a label and say things like, you know what, if you don't recognize what the word is, you probably don't want to eat it. So let's not eat those foods. And, you know, some people talk about eat the outside of the grocery store. Yes. That kind of concept where you're eating mostly fresh whole foods is the key. And, you know, people say, well, what exactly? And so I give everybody a breakfast for breakfast options, lunch options, dinner options, snack options, um, because I want people to focus on eating uh, less fake food, more fresh food, uh, lots of fruits and vegetables. And so when people are like, oh, I had a salad today and they show me the picture, it's like the salad's like that big. I'm like, no, no, no. The salad needs to be as big as your head, you know, and that's the green part of it. And so the rest you can add any colors you want, anything I say, whatever's rotting in your fridge, add. So why do you need all those greens? Well, gosh, forever. 
every reason. So greens are loaded in fiber. Greens are loaded in fiber, which is really important for your colon health, for your cholesterol to come down, um, a thousand things. So what else? It has phytonutrients. So phytonutrients, phyto just means plant nutrients. So like vitamin, plant vitamins, basically. So you're getting all these plant vitamins you're getting, which, and all those vitamins then have, um, have benefits to you like cal, uh, calcium, which people think you can't get calcium from plants, but you get loads of calcium from plants and potassium and magnesium where you're getting from your plants, but also there's nitric oxide, which is something that dilates blood vessels. And so also important. So loads of greens in the study show really five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables every day at the minimum, five to seven servings. So that's not like three strawberries as a serving. That is like a baseball sized fruit or a cup of uncooked vegetables or a half a cup of cooked vegetables. And that's what we need to be eating every single day. Um, and, um, no matter what. So I tell everybody eat a humongous salad every day for lunch, no matter what don't, that's what's lunch and put chickpeas and beans and whatever you want into it. But the greens need to be that much. So I think if you start with those two things, and I, I mean, there's many more things I would love to say. Um, but if we say cut out your red meat and cut out your fake food, then, and add back a load of vegetables. Um, those are really good starters. Um, you know, I, again, there's many levels and we keep adding more and more, uh, I have a lot of patients. I'm, I live in the South. I'm from Florida. Well, I'm not from Florida. I live in Florida. Um, and um, people often say, Dr. Agarwal, this here's the South. Um, and I hear that a lot. And so, yes, I'm familiar with the South. And people will say, well, I eat meat and potatoes. I grew up my whole life this way. And so a lot of the listeners will say, well, and I even got a comment on my book actually recently that said, it's too hard to do what you're asking, which is removing animal products. Nobody can do that. And so the answer to that question is just like some of the patients who walk in and say that is that what you've been doing for X number of years, it's not working. And so you have to consider that maybe the foods that you've been putting into your body aren't good for you and that there's another way. And so even if you don't want to change, you have to change because you want to live. At the end of the day, I want to live and live healthily and see my kids get married and have kids more than anything. And so I will do anything I have to do to stay healthy. I just won't compromise because I have too much at stake. And so if you use that concept that you will do what you have to do because you want to live, then the changes don't feel so hard. And at the beginning, you'll say, oh, I don't like the taste or this, the people say often, I don't like the texture of this, or I don't like the feeling of this in my mouth or, Ooh, I can't eat kale. It's too bitter. Well, okay, let's find ways that you can eat it, but then challenge yourself every day. So some people hate hummus, which I can't imagine because I eat hummus. Like it's, you know, I go to the store and I buy, I make it fresh, but I also buy it. And I literally buy 24 cases of hummus when I go to the store. And so people look at me and they go, Oh, are you having a party? And I'm like, no. No, I'm in a party. Every single time I go to the store, they say the same thing. I'm like, no, you don't need to ask again. I'm not having a party. <laughs> but like people don't like the texture of hummus. And so I'll tell them to put 10 tubs of hummus out, find the one that tastes semi good and then try it. And you say, nope, I still don't like it. Okay. Put it back in the fridge, bring it out tomorrow, have one more spoonful. Yep. And they still don't like it. She's crazy. They'll say, oh, Agarwal, you're crazy. Fine. Put it back in the fridge, bring it back out. And then eventually you're just like our kids it takes time to change, but we can all change. Oh, I love that so much because yes, that is what I teach to parents all the time when it comes to helping kids learn to taste and try and like new foods. It's just consistency, persistence. And what's amazing about human brain is that we have something called neuroadaptation. So even if you think you don't like something, if you try it long enough, you eventually probably will like it, <laughs> you <Absolutely>. know? <laughs> so it just, it just comes with having an open mind. But I think the best news of all of this, Dr. Agarwal, even for people that say there's no way I could eat like this, this is impossible, it's horrible. I mean, this way of eating is just not deprivation. It is just not. I mean, it is the most abundance I have had in my life. And I was one of those people before. I couldn't imagine, you know, um, not eating animal products. I thought that was extreme too. And now here I am enjoying my life 10 years later. So, so you know, that is, it's just 
one of those things just to open your mind and try and find that way. Just like you were saying, humans have the ability to learn new things. And I love that. And I don't think it has to be so drastic. It doesn't always have to be so drastic. Sometimes small changes are changes. Yes. And that's important. And, you know, you know, some every day, a little bit more. Yes. And like you said, one step at a time, just making simple swaps one step at a time. And then when you're, you feel like you've accomplished that move on to the next step. So that's great. And I love how you started with sleep. That is one of my favorite topics as well. And definitely in pediatrics, this is so important. I feel like there are so many children that are not sleeping enough. I am definitely at my house. So adamant about my kids getting enough sleep because I myself am selfish about my sleep. I call myself an intuitive sleeper. If I start to feel sleepy, it's done. I'm going to bed, (laughs) you know, like after, after medical school residency and being forced to be awake for so long, I do not skimp on my sleep. But I know that if I do skimp on my sleep, I start getting symptoms of severe depression within two days of sleep deprivation. Within two days, life suddenly looks like I took off my rose-colored glasses and put on the gray, dreary, life sucks glasses. It's amazing. Amazing. So that is how I tune into my body and say, okay, either I didn't sleep well the past two nights or skimped on my sleep somehow, but I need to get back into it so that I can feel the way I want to feel. I want to have that well-being. That's why I think it's good to help people learn how to tune into their body so that they can see for themselves what these lifestyle habits do to them. And sometimes, you know, it's sometimes you don't have to like, some people say, well, I can't tune into my body or I can't feel it. And, you know, again, this is not about self-deprecation. It's about not about saying like what you should be able to and you can't. We're all doing the best we can. And so sometimes uh, I tell people just to make little sticky notes and put them over around your bathroom mirror. And that seems to work for people. Like, did I sleep today? Did I sleep seven to nine hours? And then if you didn't, you're not saying, oh God, I failed. But to actually say with positivity, like, okay, uh, I'm going to do a better job tomorrow. You know, and sort of all that helps like positivity and focusing on not self-deprecating. And uh, some of the stuff I do in my clinic that I work on too is really, I ask patients to look in the mirror. And this is a tough one for a lot of people. And I'll say, you know, I want you to tell me something that gives, that you like about yourself. Mm. And that's always a sad thing because there's a lot of people who don't have a lot of joy and appreciation for themselves. But that part of, you know, you brought up depression and sadness. And it, it, it reminds me to say that, you know, we do need to look at ourselves and say the good things and how much joy and find the love of ourselves because it's hard to love other people if you don't love yourself and sort of learning to love the things about yourself. Um, I think is super important and changes outlook. And as you pointed out, you had your you have your rose colored glasses on when you sleep well. Well, similarly, if you have those ro- if you think positively, that's going to give you that rose colored feeling, and you'll be nicer and kinder, and then you'll be more motivated to also impact your own body with changes. Yes. Well, that was one of my questions anyway. So let's let's dive into that. Let's talk about what the importance is of positive thinking and optimism on disease and what's actually happening in our bodies. Because, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand the connection between our thoughts and our emotions and the rest of our body. So can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. So, you know, there's um, hormones, there's serotonin is in our body and people call serotonin our happiness hormone. Uh, In fact, our um, SSRIs like Zoloft and our most of our early antidepressants are all SSRIs, which they basically prevent the breakdown of serotonins. You have increased serotonin in your body. And so there's actually changes. Actually, there's serotonin. Some serotonin is made in your brain and some serotonin is made in your gut. Um, And I find that really interesting. So I always tell people, like, if I make people's gut healthier, then I increase the serotonin in their body, which then helps them with their happiness. And so that's like a a food way or, or elimination and a add back way of improving, um, the happiness feeling or increasing that happiness hormone. Um, but I do think that positivity has a lot of importance. Um, we know that if we can calm down stress levels, for instance, through meditation and mind body work, we, uh, 
grow the brain by MRI. And similarly with joy and happiness, we know that we can calm, we can bring down blood pressure. We can make people feel more motivated. Um, and they're more inclined to make changes. All of these things happen when we feel positivity, but most of us don't feel it. Uh, most of us have trouble with positivity. And, you know, there's a really neat um, podcast by a man, I don't know if you've seen this, by a man named Sean Akers, but I even like the one uh, by his um, teacher even more, and I'm forgetting his name, but I'll, I'll send it to you so you can put it in the in the show notes. Um, but he's this fabulous Harvard professor that talks about uh, happiness and joy and how community and self-love and community, and I bring up community in particular because... In America, we all live in our little nuclear little families, right? And there's not as much like I'm Indian. And so in India, people just show up and there's like 100 people. You know, obviously, in COVID, things are different, but people just show up and there's like, oh, you're staying? Sure. Bring out a couch, you know, go sleep on the couch. You know, there, and there's a very different mentality here. And just, and I feel like this importance of community is super important too, which is sort of having people that are kinship, have people you have kinship with. Actually, I'm reading this book called Eloquent Rage right now mm. by Brittany Cooper. It's a, it's a, it's a, a black feminist woman. Well, one of the things she says is how important in her life her friends have been and just having that community. So I, you know, I think what I would say is, is positivity is super important, self-love and community. And I would put those three together and then how they can have so many effects on your body as well in terms of reducing cortisol, increasing serotonin and cortisol is that stress hormone, which can come down, increasing serotonin, which is that happiness hormone. Oh, that's so important. And I'll say just because my own journey, I feel like it took me a while to get to that self-love place. A lot of times I talk to people about just starting at just self-acceptance. Mm, if we can start okay. at acceptance and then move into love, because for some people, they've been living in a place of self-loathing for so long that going from self-loathing to self-love feels like an impossible bridge to cross, you know? I like that. But I like that. That's good. That's it, nice. It's so... It's like once you learn to become your own best friend, almost nothing can get you down. You know, it's like a protection. It's uh, it's really great. So I love that. Your superpower. <laughs> really, really quick. Back to a couple yeah. of food questions that I yeah. that I wanted to address. One is spices. You specifically mentioned spices in your book. Can you talk a little bit more about what they do in our bodies and why we should aim to try to include spices in our cooking? Absolutely. So there's certain phytonutrients that you cannot get from any other source other than from a spice. And a spice is really just a, almost like a dried vegetable so much of the time. Um, my favorite, uh, there are, so, so, so for instance, the, one of the biggest ones is curcumin. And I bring up curcumin in particular because I'm a obsessed with it. Um, and everyone knows that I'm obsessed with it. I actually grow it in my backyard. Uh, I have like 20 turmeric plants in my backyard. I mean, it's crazy. And then we dry it and we grind it. And it's like this big ritual in my house. Um, but so, but there's lots of spices where you can only get the benefit from the spice. And then one of the biggest ones that I like, like I said, is turmeric and the, the main potent material is curcumin. And curcumin has been shown to be anti-inflammatory. And in small studies, so spice studies and food studies in general are suboptimal um, because, you know, studies on, on food are very difficult to do because it's very hard to isolate with all the foods we eat, it's hard to isolate that one food. It's the trigger of benefit versus negative. So, and, and nobody wants to pay for studies because why would you pay for a food study when you can pay for Lipitor? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and so that's, there are these issues, but there are studies that show, um, that um, when you compare patients with osteoarthritis, for instance, and you give them Celebrex and you compare them to taking turmeric, there's an equal benefit to taking the turmeric or the um, or the uh, the turmeric or the Celebrex. So there's lots of neat small studies that show that it has a benefit in terms of decreasing inflammation with joint issues, which is of course my biggest concern. And I have had recently over the last couple of weeks, after seven and a half years, I've been having a little bit of joint pain and I got super nervous. It brought me back to that dark place where I was seven year and a half years ago. Uh, and I thought, oh my God, what am I doing differently? Well, I know what I'm doing differently. I've gone back a little bit on 
on a few things in terms of overdoing myself um, and doing too many things again. Um, and so I started adding back more turmeric and adding back some of my anti-inflammatory spices, which I maybe had been cutting back on and the joints are back to normal again. Thank goodness. Awesome. But, um, I, I think that, I think that there's a lot of data on turmeric. So I, if you don't like the way it's very bitter, but I encourage you to start learning how to use it, it is something that you develop a taste for over time. You can get it in a capsule form. I'm not as big of a fan of the capsules, but turmeric is a really important anti-inflammatory and I drink it in my tea almost every day. Um, actually every day. Um, the other, another spice that I'm really obsessed with is garlic. Um, uh, garlic is, uh, has saponins in them and saponins are what the plants use to fight bacteria or infection. And so a lot of garlic, and that's why there's that, um, that concept that drink or eat garlic when you, when the sickness is around. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is something to that and, um, it's because of the saponins. And if you eat garlic, uh, in your foods, again, on a regular basis, it's not that I'm going to eat garlic and I'm going to fight COVID. Well, no, no, no. It's going to be like, you're going to have a little bit more of an immune boost. And so those are, that's another really good one. Uh, another really important one in my house is pomegranate powder. Um, and I'm really interested in pomegranate powder because pomegranate has a lot of data and it's on its cardiovascular benefits. So heart benefits in terms of dilation of blood vessels, um, lots of neat small studies showing changes in the blood vessel uh, diameter with taking pomegranate. Um, so those are some of the ones I do talk about more of them, like rosemary, which has some antioxidant properties and people who eat meat, you can put rosemary, for instance, on the grill and that can actually decrease the carcinogenic effects. Um, you can do that with your veggies if you do them on the grill as well. So rosemary is another one. I really like cumin. Um, I like, uh, mango powder, um, so different spices, but I think the biggest one for me, if I had to say, and I, people call it my gold because it is, it's Monica's gold, uh, is turmeric. I love it. Oh, that's such fabulous information. Okay. Great. And then oil. All right. I feel like the plant-based community is so divided on this. Ooh. Specifically olive oil. Like, is it good? Is it bad? Should we eat it? Should we not eat it? And you know, I think the reason is, is because fat tastes good. And we like to fry stuff up and have oil in it. It just tastes good. And so we're thinking in our brains, how could this be bad? Because it tastes so good. And so the question is olive oil or oil in general for inflammation. I know that the studies have shown maybe it's not as bad for cardiovascular health and you're a cardiologist, so you can tell me about that too. But when it comes to inflammatory conditions, is it prudent to avoid refined oils? So the answer is, I don't really know, uh, is the short answer. Um, I'll, let me tell you what I think and what is studied. Okay. So the data tells us, so there's some animal studies, they did a study on orangutans and they looked at multiple different types of oils and every single oil caused plaque in the blood vessel. So it wasn't that one blood, one oil, but they didn't use olive oil. And it's not that one oil was better. It's just that all of them caused plaque. And so, so that was one thing. The data from the PREDIMED data. So, you know, you, I'm glad you brought this up because it's, it's, it is super popular and contentious right now, especially in the plant-based community. And there's a lot of, uh, drama out there. But so this is what we know and what we don't know. So in the whole food plant-based studies, which are small, mostly unrandomized in those studies, when people ate no oil and they had cardiovascular disease and they ate a plant-based diet with no oil, they showed their studies, case studies, case reports of people who reversed their cardiovascular disease. However, there's some majorly very large studies that are randomized Mediterranean studies, Mediterranean diet studies, one, the PREDIMED study, which was a primary prevention study, meaning they didn't have heart disease yet, but they had high risk and the Lyon heart study, which where they did have heart disease. And in both studies, and remember the Mediterranean diet is a plant-based diet that focuses on eating oils, red wine, 
and fish and less of the sort of stuff like chicken and simple sweets and stuff. And so in those, but also all those plant-based foods, like whole foods, lots of fruits and vegetables. And in those studies, they showed that compared to a standard American diet or a Western diet, that a Mediterranean diet was better. In the PrediMed study, the people who had the most plant-based lifestyle, they did the best of all the Mediterranean patients. So leading us towards eating mostly plants because all the Mediterranean patients, the plant-based people did the best or the people who had the most plants in their diet. But there's also been studies that have shown that people who have high olive oil do in those plant-based groups, they did fine. So the thought is, is that's based on the polyphenol content of olive oil. So I actually just submitted an IRB protocol. Uh, IRB protocol, for those of you who don't know, is in the co- in, in hospitals, we have an internal review board to do um, studies. And I am putting my cardiovascular patients through a plant-based diet with high oil and low oil. And I'm going to follow them and see what happens. Because the answer to the question is, I don't know. Because in anybody who tells you that they know are wrong, because the study has never been done, if that's the truth. We think that lower oil is better because it makes sense that less fat is better. And then we know that in so many of the fat studies in terms of saturated fat in particular, we know that cardiovascular disease gets worse. So we think that if, for instance, the standard Western diet in terms of mortality is here uh, um, and the Mediterranean diet is here, so there's that huge improvement, that the plant-based diet is probably here, meaning that it has the most significant improvement in mortality because of the lower fat content. We Mm -hmm. think that, but we don't know that. And so I would tell people, what I tell people about oil is that in terms of cardiovascular disease is that I know that you need to eat most, I know for sure you need to eat mostly plants or all plants, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, plant-based foods. And that whether you eat a little bit of oil or a little bit more oil, I don't know the answer. And usually what I tell them is to pick oils like olive or canola or avocado oil, which are highest in omega-3 fatty acids, um, which is a benefit. And then I tell them to then um, we'll monitor their markers and see what happens. Mm -hmm. I also tell them though, that if they have advanced heart disease and high LDL cholesterols, I do cut out almost all of their oil. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have really favorable benefit from that, but I can't tell you that I'm right. Yeah. I think I'm right, but I don't know I'm right. Um, in terms of coconut oil, um, I'm, a, I'm not a fan. It's 98% or so saturated fat, even though it is a lauric acid, so a medium chain fatty acid rather than a long chain, it's still a saturated fat. And so our cardiology community says uh, a no to that. Yeah. Um, in terms of autoimmune disease, I also don't know. Again, I think that I think it makes sense to me that it has an inflammatory effect, that fats are too inflammatory, but I don't know that for sure in terms of olive oil in particular, which is the one that has that high polyphenol content. So in my most honest in a science, science hat on, the answer is I don't know. I do think that uh, low oil is better, but I don't know for sure. And so the reason there's been so much drama recently in the plant-based community is because so many people are saying, well, some, some of the older uh, plant-based folks are saying, yes, low, no oil is better. And some of the newer people are saying, wait, there's not enough data. And the, or that they're saying actually oil's good. Or the truth is we don't know. We don't know the answer to that question. We have a, we think, but we don't know. So more research needed. Time will tell. And will tell. also, like you said, individualize. So if you are a patient and you can have your doctor monitor your labs, or you can see that whenever you eat certain things, you don't feel great afterwards. That's also a way to evaluate how you're eating and what it's doing to you. And and also remember that 
you know, frying in general, like we don't want to ever fry food, you know, like we don't want to fry food. We don't want to eat foods that are high in oil really ever because, and so the difference we're talking about is extra virgin olive oil, three or four tables, uh, three or four, uh, 39 grams versus seven grams, which was in the studies truthfully, which is actually the difference between three tablespoons. So just so we're clear, we're not talking about deep frying ever. We're not talking about loading on oil onto your salad just to keep, you know, like turn around and look. And we're not talking about these, uh, a lot of the junk oils, which are corn oil and been sort of oils that I'm not vegetable oil, which is like this who knows oil and, you know, not talking about eating those oils at all. So I really want people to avoid those and coconut oil as well. If you're going to, I always tell patients this, if you're going to have a little bit of oil, just eat a little bit. Um, and, um, just if you're going to cook with it, fine, cook with it a little bit, but really really monitor the amount you put in, uh, if you're going to use it and watch what your body feels like after you eat yes. it. And then, you know, you really have to listen to your body because some people can handle more than others. And one last thing, cause I know I'm talking too much is that, um, is that there's a recent study that came out that I love, which came out in one of the big journals that we follow called the new England journal of medicine. And it talked about the difference between genetics and lifestyle and, and it's very important because it talks about how people, because everybody will say, well, so-and-so can eat that way and he does fine and so-and-so. Well, you know what? We're all different. Mm-hmm. You know, all of our genes are different. And in that study, what they showed was that people who have low genetic risk, if you have a, a good or favorable lifestyle, those people do better than people who have an unfavorable lifestyle. However, people, but not nearly as bad of a risk as patients who have a poor genetic, um, have poor genes, and then their lifestyle matters even more. Mm -hmm. So, and that was a little wordy, but to say basically that the worse your genetic profile, the more you have to be aggressive with your lifestyle. But what's interesting is the people who have worse genes, you can't change your genes, you can't change your parents, uh, who have maybe worse genes, quote unquote, um, who do a healthy lifestyle, they can make their risk almost effectively as good as a person with low risk who eats a poor lifestyle. Wow. Yeah, that is so empowering because I think a lot of people think the opposite, that they have the genes and then there's nothing they can do about it, but there is. 100% disagree, yep. What do you wish more people knew? I wish more people knew that they could do something about them, their illness. I wish they could feel like you just said, you know, you th- people say that they think their genes, then this is it. This is what I've got. I, I want people to know that it's you, you do, we all get what we get, but it's how we respond to it. That makes us who we are, right? It's, it's how we, how we choose to tackle it. It's how we, we can tackle it with changing our lifestyle, with keeping a really positive attitude, but doing what needs to be done to take care of our bodies and listening to our bodies. And that, you know, genes are genes, but there's epigenetics, which means that we can, the things around our genes can be modified. If genes can be turned on, I think genes can be turned off and we just haven't figured that part out yet. Mm-hmm. So I want people to feel and come away from this podcast and feel empowered to walk away and say, you know what? She did it. I can do it. I can do it too. Because even though it's hard and change is really hard, I cried when I gave up cheese. But every time you make the change, I will never go back because I feel so good. And so if you can come away thinking, okay, I can do this. I can take one step at a time. And for the person who sent sent me that review that it's too hard to change, I want to say, no, it is hard to change, but it's not too hard to change. We can all do it. Yes. Ah, beautiful message. Well, let us know what is your personal habit that you're most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? So my personal habit that I'm most proud of, um, I think that I would say my personal habit is appreciating joy, Mm. um, that I'm most proud of because I definitely didn't for years. I didn't appreciate what I had and, um, I didn't, um, I, I just, I was more entitled and expectant of things and not grateful for what I had. And so for instance, when I finish a yoga practice or an exercise, I'll say to myself, 
accept what your body has to give and then push it a little bit further. And so it's like, you have to understand that this is maybe all you had. I, I don't self-deprecate. I accept it. And then I try to just get a little bit better every day. And that's a habit that I didn't, I wasn't raised that way. I wasn't raised to think that way. And I'm raising my kids that way. And I would say, that's what I'm most proud of is to say, you know, what, what, what is great about your day? What, what gives you joy? What gives you happiness? Or I know this sucked today that this happened to you, but how did you make get better. Mm. And I think the thing that the personal habit that I would say that I have nurtured over that time is, is finding that joy, uh, in my life and appreciating the things I have. Oh, that's just uh, so beautiful. And it's so true because that's what well-being is made of. That is what a good live life is made of is being able to appreciate those little moments and string those together to find our joy. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Agarwal, this has been so wonderful. You so are fun. just bursting with knowledge and experience <laughs> and I'm just so appreciative that you were able to join me today. Please let my listeners so know where can they connect with you? Oh yeah, no, so fun. It's my pleasure. I really enjoy doing this and I, I enjoy following you and I, I love your pictures. I have to say on Instagram and I see your face cause you have a beautiful face and I feel happy oh, and I, I want you to know that because you should know you make impact. And I do, I, I see your cheeks and I'm just like, ah, <laughs> she's amazing. I mean it. I mean it. You're amazing. And so, um, how do you reach me? So I have Instagram, Dr. Monica Agarwal. It's two G's. I know that's a hard one. Um, I use Twitter a lot for uh, medical. So it's, again, it's Dr. M. Agarwal. I do use Facebook, but not as well. Um, and then uh, if you go to, I have a website that I, I at least has an email address. So if you go to drmonicaagarwal.com, there's a contact us form and you can uh, reach out and um, there's a donate button now because we are, we just started a nonprofit to support mm -hmm. the research that we're doing, which I'm excited about. Um, so, you know, just getting funds from the community to support research, to ask some of these important questions that we don't have the answers to. Um, but yeah. And then the book's available on Amazon body on fire. Awesome. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the nonprofit so much passion you. and you're doing so much. Well, leave us with one call to action. You've given us so much information today, and I know that it's all very actionable, but what is one thing that we can do starting today to lead an anti-inflammatory lifestyle? So, um, oh gosh, it's just so many things I would want to say to answer this question. So the one thing I would say um, to start out is I want everyone to pick up a journal and I want you to, this is probably not what you were expecting. Cause I could have said, you know, I could have said, start walking or I, I was tempted to say, start sleeping more. And then I was tempted to say, well, just cut out the red meat. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second. And then I went with something totally opposite of what I was going to say, uh, which is, I would just pick up a notebook and, uh, it doesn't have to be fancy. I, you know, a, a three ring binder or a piece of paper, but something and put, put your name on it and put it in your side drawer next to your bed. And I want you to try to write one nice thing in that journal every single day. And I think that it can't be a negative. I will tell people it can't be a negative positive. I didn't do that bad today is a negative positive, but I want you to think about something in your life that gives you joy and happiness or that you like about yourself or something that made you happy. And I want you to try to do that every day. One thing, uh, it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be writing a book. You don't have to say, oh, I can't write. I'm not a good writer. I don't care. It's just for you and yourself and just write something about yourself um, one of the affirmations that I use with my kids after we do our breathing at night is I say, I am good. I am strong. I am loved. Mm -hmm. uh, and so sometimes even if you write that every single day for two months before you think of something else to write, that's okay. Um, but I want you to write something positive and maybe that would be a good call to action just to start there because it's saying to yourself, I choose to be happy. I choose to get better. I choose to heal. Oh, that's so beautiful. And you're such a wonderful mother. I love that call to action. We haven't had that call to action on the show before. And I think that this is perfect. I think that's a great place for people to start. And it's something that some people desperately need in their lives right now. So I Dr. So. Agawal, again, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all the work that you do and for sharing your journey with us. And I hope that you have a very fantastic day. 
Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.